Welcome to the A-Level Politics Show, Episode 6, Series 2. I am Nick D'Souza, your host on this beautiful August morning. I hope you are all doing very well indeed. If you are a teacher worried about your forthcoming results due on the 15th of August, don't worry, they will be fine. More importantly, if you are a student waiting for your results, don't worry, they will be fine. And if you are a student going into your second year, you will be fine. Listen to this podcast. I hope it will help. Today, we're going to be focusing on the effectiveness of checks and balances in the US political system. So sit back and enjoy. Before we start, I just wanted to make you aware of the forthcoming episodes and our thinking behind the topics. We want to have topics that will follow your course. So in the next few weeks, we'll be putting out podcasts for students entering the second year that will cover the US Constitution, that will cover the remaining ideologies that we haven't done yet, um, including socialism and feminism. And for students new to the course, we will have a real emphasis on democracy because I think most colleges and sixth forms actually start with those topics. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. And this is why today we're going to be looking at checks and balances. If you're going into your second year, it's highly likely within the first few weeks, this is a topic. It's, it comes under the constitution topic in the United States. This is a topic that some students struggle with. And I hope that this podcast will help you. So let's get started then. Today's question, evaluate the effectiveness of checks and balances in the US political system. What I would do is expand the definition of effective. First of all, what are checks and balances though? Checks and balances are those powers given to different branches of the federal government that enable them to check other branches of the federal government, to hold them to account. And when we're talking about the branches of federal government, we are talking about the US presidency, we are talking about the US Congress, and we are talking about the US Supreme Court. That word effective needs to be thrashed out. So um, I would say to be effective, you need to ensure that that check is meeting the requirements that the founding fathers placed upon them. What were the founding fathers requirements? Number one, that there is an avoidance of tyranny, that concentration of power is avoided. So that's what the purpose of those checks and balances were. So when you're examining a specific check, you have to ask the question, does it avoid tyranny? Does it avoid concentration of power? The second goal of the founding fathers was to ensure while avoiding the concentration of power that you are still able to have a smooth, smoothly running government uh, that encourages bipartisanship, encourages different factions to work together. So when you're looking at specific checks, you need to come back to the word effectiveness. What is effective in the in the view of the founding fathers? It was the concentration of power is to be avoided. That's effective if that is happening. And bipartisanship is present. That's effective if that is happening. And therefore, we can then go on and look at several of these checks and hold them 
to those two requirements laid out by the founding fathers. Now what I'm going to do in terms of organising my essay is I'm going to examine a check. I'm going to give an example of that check in use. When we're talking about checks, we're talking about powers of specific branches and how, how they hold the others to account. And then I'm going to uh, give a counter argument. So I'm going to show how that check is not being used or is underused or is being misused. And that will help me to analyse that specific check and whether it's working, whether it's effective. I'm going to constantly refer back to the, the words concentration of power, whether that's avoided. I'm going to be uh, linking back to partisanship, bipartisanship. Remember, bipartisanship means that this check will encourage different factions, different parties, different groups to work together. The opposite of bipartisanship is partisanship, and that is gridlock, that's divide, that's ideological difference, that's a refusal to work together. And I think that we are going to see that many of these checks actually do not encourage bipartisanship they actually allow too easily partisanship to reign. And there are examples as well of many of these checks, particularly when it comes to foreign affairs, uh, being abused. So my direction actually is going to be that the checks and balances are not effective. That doesn't mean to say that you will take a different line of argument. So after the jingles, uh, we will uh, carry on uh, with this podcast. first area that I'm going to look at is executive and judicial appointments. In the US system, uh, the US president can nominate officials to serve in the executive and can nominate judges. Now, what is the check in place? Well, the Senate confirms presidential nominations to the executive branch and confirms judges as well. Let's give an example of that check in use. Uh, Trump's nominee uh, for Army Secretary, Vincent Viola was forced to withdraw his name from the nomination process after it became clear that the Senate would ask some very difficult questions regarding Vincent Viola's potential conflicts of interest regarding his financial affairs. So that check uh, in place ensures that the president cannot get every single appointment through. They can't just appoint their friends. It's very, very difficult uh, to do that. Um, however, I'm going to argue the counter to that. The example of the check either not being used or underused. Pretty much all of Trump's cabinet was easily approved by the Senate, including a climate change denier, Scott Pruitt, who was confirmed as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. And I should point out, actually, that's not a cabinet post, but the president has uh, a lot of agencies that um, he can um, appoint the heads of, and the EPA is perhaps the most high profile of that. Um, and he appointed someone who just simply didn't believe in climate change. The Senate just waved it through. The Senate at the moment is controlled by the Republicans. Donald Trump is a Republican. So arguably, uh, in an era of so-called united government, uh, when one party uh, controls uh, the more than just one uh, branch of government, uh, then it's much easily easy to get uh, your nominations through. There's also examples of misuse. 
Um, so and, and, and examples of partisanship rather than pi- bipartisanship. Now that that if, it, if there's evidence of partisanship, that's going against what the founding fathers deemed as effective. The Republicans in the Senate refused to vote on Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, despite previous comments by Republicans praising Garland's suitability as a Supreme Court judge. The refusal to hold a vote on Merrick Garland stemmed from the Republican unwillingness to give Democrats, Obama was a Democrat, the Democrats a win in an election year to have um, a Supreme Court uh, judge who is successfully, a judge who's nominated successfully to the Supreme Court in uh, is something that US presidents think of as very, very important indeed, um, because it's such a high profile position. So if you get someone on the Supreme Court, that is seen as a big win uh, for you. And it was an election year, it was 2016. The Republicans simply did not want to give Obama um, and by extension, the Democratic uh, candidate that year, Hillary Clinton, a win. And so they invoke something called the Thurman rule. And that is that um, the the Senate will not hear um, confirmation hearings uh, for Supreme Court judges in an election year. That is a, a rule that was simply made up by the Republicans. Um, and it was a convenient rule that they made up so that they did not have to appoint uh, a judge who they deem too liberal uh, to get onto the Supreme Court. I would argue that's example an example of misuse of a power. You are supposed to confirm uh, presidential appointments um, or reject them, but the the fact they refused to even uh, hold a vote on Merrick Garland left open the seat on the Supreme Court for the subsequent president, uh, President Trump, to fill. Let's go on to the second chapter we're going to look at, um, and it covers military conflict. Congress declares war, as I already stated, but the president is the commander in chief. Now, what that actually means is uh, the president has day to day command of the armed forces. He can move them around uh, the, uh, the globe. Uh, he can decide uh, where it is appropriate uh, for uh, submarines to be, for example. Um, but uh, Congress uh, has the final say on whether the US will go to war. An example of this check in place is perhaps uh, when Congress passed the War Powers Act in 1973, which kind of extended its powers to declare war because it requested that the president informs Congress within 60 days after the commencement of military action. Um, Congress last declared war, however, in actually officially declared war in, 1950, in 1941 uh, after the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. And that's despite the fact that the US has been involved in more than 20 conflicts since then. Now, you could argue that uh, Congress has had many votes uh, on um, military action. There was uh, resolutions on Iraq giving uh, the president uh, power to uh, do what they saw fit, but it was short of a declaration of war. Um, Obama actually just simply ignored the War Powers Act uh, when, or for a time anyway, when um, he uh, approved a no-fly zone um, in Libya. Um, he ignored the time limit that the War Powers Act places upon uh, the president. So 
Uh, while Congress does declare war, in this particular circumstance, it seems like the president has far more influence over military matters uh, than Congress. If we look, for example, at how President Trump has more or less unilaterally just uh, removed America from the Iran deal that Obama signed, uh, it shows that the president is more than just commander in chief. He is chief diplomat as well. And they set the focus of diplomacy. There are practical reasons for this, because uh, when you're dealing with world leaders, you don't want hundreds of congressmen uh, in the room. You just really want uh, your guy there. Um, and that for the United States is the US president. Nevertheless, I think you can see that with the underuse of the declaration of war, with the ignoring of the War Powers Act, um, you can make the case that in this circumstance, in this particular check, uh, the president seems to be concentrating a little bit more power, um, which goes against the effectiveness of checks and balances as defined by the founding fathers, that, that power ought not to be concentrated. When it comes to foreign affairs, it looks like the checks that Congress has are not actually uh, working. Let's go on to the next couple of checks. We're going to focus now on presidential pardons. Now, the president can commute the sentence or exonerate individuals that have been found guilty of crimes. So Obama commuted the sentence of Chelsea Manning after she revealed confidential information about civilian casualties from the US bombing of Iraq. Chelsea Manning uh, worked for the US government, um, had sensitive information, uh, revealed um, all the uh, things that perhaps uh, the US president didn't want them to reveal, i.e. that the bombing campaign in Iraq uh, was causing um, a number, hundreds, maybe thousands of civilian casualties. Because she revealed that classified information, she was... Um, arrested, put on trial, found guilty, given a huge jail term. But of course, Obama came to uh, the presidency um, promising to draw down uh, the action in Iraq. He said that he was against uh, the Iraq war. Um, and so while he didn't want to completely pardon Chelsea Manning because uh, it is not a good thing for uh, someone with classified information just to simply release it. Uh, he did also recognise that perhaps Chelsea Manning uh, needed some degree of sympathy and therefore uh, reduced her sentence massively. And so she uh, ultimately walked free, still guilty, but walked free. But if you are a president, you can also pardon people. So therefore you can say this person uh, from now on is not guilty. Um, and... Um, we're going to be looking at an example of a Trump pardon in a second. I want to, however, stress that these pardons can be um, either underused or misused. Most of Obama's pardons concern people who were convicted of minor offences. Chelsea Manning was perhaps the most high profile. But when it comes to the misuse or the abuse of this pardon, therefore the concentration of power, therefore questionable effectiveness of checks and balances, we have to look at Trump and two high-profile pardons that he's given. He pardoned Sheriff Joe um, Apayo, even though that sheriff 
was found guilty of contempt of court. Um, Apio had been ignoring court orders to desist the harsh treatment of suspected illegal immigrants. He was rounding them up, putting them in jail um, willy-nilly. Um, Apio, however, happened to be a staunch Trump supporter, and lo and behold, uh, he was pardoned quite soon as Trump assumed the presidency. Um, also, if we look at Trump's pardoning of Conrad Black, um, Conrad Black was uh, found guilty of numerous offences. Um, he was the former editor of the Daily Telegraph, uh, just so uh, you know. Um, but he happened to write a really nice article about Donald Trump. And lo and behold, a couple of years later into the Trump presidency, Conrad Black was also pardoned. That perhaps is an example of misuse of power, concentration of power. Therefore, we have to question the effectiveness of checks and balances. Now, we're going to move on. So far, we've looked at the powers, really, that the president has. Uh, nominating judicial appointments and how they're checked or not checked enough. Uh, their power as commander in chief and how Congress tries perhaps unsuccessfully uh, to uh, stop them in that regard. And then presidential pardons, which really don't have uh, significant checks on them, quite frankly. Um, we're now going to look at uh, Congress a little bit more. We're going to look at the area of legislation. Congress can reject, amend or delay presidential bills. An example of that check in use, Republican lawmakers uh, stymied Trump's uh, attempts to overturn Obamacare. On a few occasions, they did that, uh, where even Republican John McCain uh, refused to accept Trump's reforms or abandonment of uh, the Affordable Care Act that Obamacare uh, uh, was. So uh, we can see how presidents don't always get what they want. Congress can stop them doing things. However, is it always the case that Congress drastically amends a presidential initiative, delays or rejects? Well, let's look at the evidence. The Patriot Act was passed in just 28 days after 9-11. Um, this had all kinds of really important things in it, like uh, creating the legal framework for uh, a detention camp in Guantanamo Bay for suspected terrorist suspects rounded up in Afghanistan. Um, also, uh, it allowed a domestic uh, wiretapping, snooping program. So you'd think that Congress would give it uh, plenty of time to look at. But that act, maybe because of the sentiment after 9-11 of, of retribution and so on, uh, that act was passed with undue haste, bypassing the usual committee stages in Congress and bypassing detailed scrutiny. So that's an example, perhaps, of a check, the legislative check, the power of Congress to reject, amend or delay bills not really being used enough. But there's also examples of misuse, examples of using the legislative processes, using the power uh, to uh, delay, to amend, uh, to reject, uh, to embarrass a president uh, for partisan ends. In divided government, where one party controls the presidency and the other controls the legislature, uh, you can get a severe curtailment of the president's ability to pass anything meaningful uh, or anything that they promised to the electorate when they were elected. Um, Obama really failed or was unable to pass anything of substance in his last six years in office because the Republicans either controlled both, both houses of Congress or at least one of them. 
So partisanship or so-called gotcha politics, embarrassment politics, has replaced substantive debates, perhaps most typified by the comments of Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said that his main aim was to make Obama a one-term president. His main aim was to make Obama a one-term president. That is not using your power to reject, amend or delay presidential bills to make laws that will serve the rest of the country. That is really using your rational thought processes. I want to get this guy out of office so we can get our guys in. Is that really bipartisanship or is it partisanship? I put it to you that it is partisanship and that the checks and balances in place are being used in such a way that make them render them ineffective in the eyes and views of the founding fathers. Let's now turn to removing officials from office. So this really focuses on impeachment. The House of representatives can impeach a president. Now, the word impeach does not mean remove. It means force a president to stand trial. The Senate hears that impeachment trial. Now, does this check work? Well, let's look at Nixon. First of all, Nixon was never impeached. He was likely to be impeached. But this is the thing. While he was not impeached, he was forced to resign over the Watergate affair, which we won't go into too much detail here, owing to the threat of impeachment. So the threat of impeachment is perhaps uh, more important than the actual power itself, the actual power being used. Uh, so that's a good example of, of the threat of that power forcing a president to do the right thing and to resign. However, I think there's more examples of where impeachment has either been underused or misused. The congressional investigation into Trump's collusion with Russia in the 2016 presidential election uh, became bogged down in partisan bickering, so much so that the FBI had to establish its own independent investigation or was asked to establish its own independent investigation because the, the House investigation, the House of Representatives investigation, dominated by Republicans, could not be trusted. Politicians cannot be trusted to hold their own side to account, so much so that the um, chair of the committee investigating collusion with Russia was actually given, giving a running commentary to Trump about what they were finding out. He was racing over to the White House uh, to tell Trump um, everything they knew. So that's not really investigation. That's not really um, meaningful um, checks and balances when it comes to impeachment and um, removing officials uh, from office or at least threatening them with that and when impeachment has happened, arguably it's been misused. Uh, Clinton's impeachment, an eventual acquittal by the Senate. So he was impeached. He was forced to stand trial in the Senate. The House voted to impeach him, but he was eventually acquitted. He was found not guilty uh, by the Senate of lying about an affair. Um, that split upon party lines, that vote uh, in the Senate, that, uh, that vote in the House split upon party lines. Democrats believed that Clinton's impeachment was merely used to punish a president that kept beating Republicans at the ballot box. Um, Republicans would disagree with that. But when things split along partisan lines, that shows evidence of partisanship and therefore ineffective checks and balances. Um, and it also shows that that check is arguably being misused. Let's now go on uh, to the Supreme Court. We've looked at some of the checks that the president has. We've looked at some of the checks that... Congress has, whether that's in the House of Representatives or the Senate. 
Now let's go on to the Supreme Court, and we're looking at the area of constitutional interpretation. The Supreme Court has the power to strike down laws passed by Congress using its power of judicial review. Judicial review is not officially in the U.S. Constitution, but it is implied, and it was assumed uh, in a Supreme Court case, 1803, Marbury v. Madison. So it was assumed that the founding fathers wanted. The Supreme Court to have the power of judicial review, striking down laws passed by Congress or actions um, taken by the president that are deemed to be unconstitutional. The Defence of Marriage Act, so-called DOMA, was struck down by the Supreme Court for not affording equal protection to gay couples who were denied federal marriage benefits by this act. And in that sense, you could argue that the Supreme Court is not only striking down an act. Passed by Congress um, and therefore checking them, they are actually upholding uh, the rights of minority citizens by doing so, and therefore avoiding the concentration of power, avoiding the bigotry that was contained in that act passed by Congress. But liberals would argue that the Supreme Court failed to uphold uh, women's rights to equal protection when having an abortion. Since the、uh, court sided with Congress over banning partial birth abortion or late-term abortions、um, at a federal level,、um, and liberals would also point to the Citizens United versus FEC 2010 decision by the Supreme Court, which struck down meaningful bipartisan laws on campaign finance, the so-called McCain-Feingold Act. McCain was a Republican, Feingold a Democrat. Now, Congress passed this law to limit corporate spending in election campaigns. Most people thought, while flawed, it was a good law. It stopped、uh, too much corporate influence、um, in election campaigns. The Supreme Court came along and said, "No, it's unconstitutional," and so therefore、uh, allowed、uh, unlimited corporate spending in election campaigns that not many people actually think is a good idea. That's an argument. Or, or a suggestion, perhaps, that the Supreme Court has too much power that it can strike down sensible laws that were made in a bipartisan manner, passed by elected officials. Arguably, therefore, the Supreme Court is acting in an imperial fashion, and is concentrating its power, abusing its power of judicial review. Now, let's look at the area. Now, since we mentioned.、Um, Citizens United. Let's look at the area of raising and spending money. Now, Congress can accept, amend, or reject a president's budget. So, Democrat lawmakers scaled back George W. Bush、uh, and his trillion-dollar tax cut、uh, for the richest one percent of income earners. That's an example where. Congress looked at what the president wanted to do, allowed them to do it, but amended it, scaled it back. Um, ensured that it was not quite uh, as um, outrageous uh, as it ended up,、uh, as the president wanted it to be.、Um, now, when there is united government, when one party controls both the White House and Congress, it is easier, perhaps too easy, maybe, for the party in power to spend more money. Obama's TARP scheme to prop up failing banks after the credit crunch was. Um, Criticised by Republicans for rewarding Wall Street with billions of taxpayers' money, so the banks went bust,、um, and Obama felt that they needed to ensure that those banks 
had enough liquidity, had enough money in their vaults to be able to lend again. Um, and so therefore, this scheme, it's called the TARP scheme, uh, gave those banks lots of money in order to do so. And of course, uh, it was way through fairly easily, uh, given that at that time, the Democrats uh, controlled both houses of Congress. However, um, while it might be easier to get things done uh, in the United Government, uh, we still have evidence of um, partisanship, especially when there's divided government. By rejecting Clinton's and Obama's budget, Republicans in Congress shut down the government. If you reject a budget, you effectively shut down the government. Now, I have a first cousin who works for the JFK Library in um, Boston, and she went unpaid for weeks and weeks when the government was shut down by Trump, actually, by refusing uh, to uh, sign off on his own budget when Congress made it clear that they would not accept um, his demands for spending on um, the wall on the southern border. Um, so this really can affect people when you reject a budget. And if you do it for partisan ends, you're not really serving uh, your citizens. Uh, you're doing it to uh, serve your own rational interests about re-election and appealing to uh, some of your core constituents. So doubts about Congress's ability to agree on, say, the debt ceiling uh, resulted in America's debt being downgraded by credit rating agencies several years ago. Therefore, this issue of accepting, rejecting, amending the president's budget has become a victim of partisanship and arguably, therefore, is not an effective check. It's either being uh, not used enough during the United Government um, and therefore allowing the concentration of power or it is being abused during divided government um, and therefore uh, is subject to partisanship. Um, and again, is not effective. So my overall direction has been that many of these checks uh, are, are either not being used enough or they're being used too much. They're being abused for partisan ends. And that's where I leave you today. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and we will see you next time.